You're listening to Heart Sounds from the Pulse of Cardiology. Hello, and welcome to the August edition of Heart Sounds. I started working as a cardiology reporter straight out of journalism school. So for me, August has always retained that bittersweet back-to-school feel. That's mostly thanks to the ESC Congress, which is almost always held just before the Labor Day long weekend. Regular news in August is slow and simmering, much like the lazy days themselves. But looming at the end of the month is the biggest conference of the year. You don't want summer to pass too quickly, but you're also excited to get to ESC. Visit another beautiful European city. See old friends and colleagues, and in a good year, hear about big trial results. This month was no different. Sure enough, the late summer weeks passed much more quickly than I would have liked. And by the time you listen to this, ESC will also be in the rearview mirror. So let's jump in and I'll tell you about a few of the stories we looked at on TCTMD this month, then give you an audio peek, if I can call it that, at this year's ESC Congress. Earlier this month, TCTMD reporter Todd Neal covered a meta-analysis published in The Lancet spanning 40 randomized trials on more than 128,000 patients. The trials, published between 1986 and 2005, all compared fibrinolytic agents alone or in combination with adjunctive antithrombotic therapy with other agents, placebo, or no treatment. Of course, primary PCI is the preferred treatment for STEMI, as the authors themselves point out. But when primary PCI is not available or can't be delivered in a timely fashion, it's important to know which fibrinolytic regimen works best. In this study, investigators led by Pirawat Jinatongtai report that tenecteplase, retoplase, or an accelerated infusion of altoplase are preferable to streptokinase and non-accelerated altoplase for reperfusion therapy in STEMI. Of note, the addition of glycoprotein 2B or 3A inhibitors to fibrinolytic therapy should be, in their words, discouraged. Todd spoke to Hadir Schroff from the University of Illinois at Chicago for his thoughts on this study. He made the point that in parts of the globe where these drugs may be the best option, the decision on which one to use is not always cut and dry. It is useful to look at data like this, and I think they did a very nice job of of looking at these trials and doing this analysis. Um, And I do think that there is a need to look at what happens throughout the world and how we're delivering care in these communities. I think it does give people an idea that if you are going to do a thrombolytic-based therapy, if you're in rural know, Africa or India or Pakistan, and you need to develop a system of how to give it. It does give you some guidance of, hey, here are the drugs that may provide the most benefit. That being said, those drugs tend to be the most expensive ones. Um, And the cheaper ones, like the streptokinase, which is cheaper than the, the newer agents, that may be the limiting force or the primary driver of what gets used in some of these um economically challenged or developing countries, it may not necessarily be that, hey, we want to use the best drug. Um, We want to use the best drug at the right price. Sticking with acute coronary syndromes, TCTMD's Michael O'Reardon covered a study looking at the timing of invasive angiography in people with non-ST elevation ACS. Current guidelines suggest that high-risk patients undergo invasive angiography within 24 hours and intermediate-risk patients within 72 hours, with risk determined using the GRACE score. This again was a meta-analysis, also appearing in The Lancet, looking at eight trials and more than 5,300 patients. Investigators found that an early invasive strategy compared with a delayed strategy did not reduce mortality for the cohort as a whole. 
The only patients who benefited from early angiography were the highest risk patients, namely those with a GRACE score greater than 140, pre-existing diabetes, age 75 or older, or elevated cardiac biomarkers. The point about biomarkers is worth paying attention to, given the advent of the new, highly sensitive troponin tests. Those came up when Mike spoke with Robert de Winter from the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, asking him whether the evidence is strong enough to recommend that high-risk NTSD-ACS patients get invasive angiography within 24 hours. Here's de Winter. Well, in my opinion, it's not. It, it depends a little bit on if, if a patient that is uh, a non-ST elevation ACS patient, if he's admitted to a hospital and he's under the care of experienced cardiologists, I think he's, he, he's safe. And if there's any change in his clinical situation, he can also, he, you know, he can always be transferred. What's happening is that with the high sensitive troponin, you have a lot of patients that have slight troponin elevation, which, and these patients are basically, they don't have to be high-risk patients and they stabilize and they do fine and they they don't need to undergo angiography within 24 hours if they are stable. But if you follow the guidelines uh, to the letter, then you need to transfer all these patients. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then a heart model is worth a million words. Because, you know, it's just it's amazing how fast everybody understands it when they hold the model in their hand. A Heart to Hold. That's the title of a feature story Yael Maxwell produced earlier this month on 3D printing in structural heart disease. Some of you, I'm sure, like me, have been trying to wrap your mind around all the ways 3D printing can be used in cardiovascular medicine. Yael's feature is a great starting point. As Yael learned speaking to a range of people for her story, 3D printing is really a catch-all term for a wide variety of manufacturing techniques that use two-dimensional digital imagery to print an object that can be held and touched and examined from all angles. These images, at least for body parts, are typically generated by CT, MRI, or echocardiography. Then software converts these for the printer, which then builds them out of a wide variety of substances, for example, plastic, ceramic, or metal. The printers themselves range from desktop models that cost a couple hundred bucks to large industrial room size versions with price tags upwards of one million. In cardiology, the technology is currently being used primarily for anatomic evaluation and treatment planning. The voice you heard at the beginning of this segment was Stephen Littles at the DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center in Houston, Texas. He walked Yael through some scenarios, particularly in structural heart disease, where 3D printing has allowed the physicians working on the case to print a model of the patient's heart, then work out how to do the intervention and size the fix before starting the procedure on the patient, him or herself. Yael also spoke with D.D. Wang from the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. Wang said that patients love their 3D printed hearts so much they want to take them home to put on their mantelpieces. But more than being a great souvenir, the printed hearts are proving invaluable for helping patients with challenging forms of structural heart disease that really can't be treated safely with surgery. In the example you're about to listen to, Wang explains how printing the heart model in advance can help interventionalists avoid potentially deadly pitfalls with transcatheter mitral valve replacement. Here, Yael has just asked whether 3D printing is cost-effective for patients. Absolutely. So the main reason is these are patients coming to us who've been turned down for traditional open-heart surgery without any other options. And with transcatheter mitral valve therapies, it, this is a dramatic improvement to the population that have mitral valve disease that otherwise were sentenced to hospice. You are able to save lives and prevent deaths with this technology. 
And anybody who has done and is an experienced transcatheter mitral valve center will have had complications related to uh, left ventricle outflow tract obstruction mm -hmm. because a valve was put into a person's body and it fit, but it prevented blood from going out the aorta. Mm -hmm. And that's where the 3D modeling and the 3D printing is crucial because in these cases, first of all, we only have four valve sizes for the whole world's population in structural heart. Mm -hmm. We don't have customization. And these are not retrievable valves. So we have one-shot attempt at putting a valve correctly into a person's body in a very high-risk situation where there's no surgical backup. And if it's not evaluated for all potential worst-case scenarios, a patient could potentially suffer fatal outflow tract obstruction and die as a consequence. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a very well-understood phenomenon in transcatheter mitral valve technology, but that's also you can't really put a price on saving a life or preventing a death. Uh -huh. But every life that we can save is a win for us. Bonjour. Hello. Hello. Goedemorgen. Bonjour. Goedemorgen. Greetings from the ESC. If the audio sounds a bit different, that's because it's European. We've been run off our feet here, covering all the news coming out of the meeting. I thought I'd try and squeeze a few highlights into this podcast before it hits the airwaves. If you haven't already heard, much of the buzz from ESC 2017 has come from the CAVA, for one, but also from the Compass and Cantos trials. Cantos was the 10,000 patient trial looking at the fully human monoclonal antibody canakinumab in patients with previous MI, high-sensitivity CRP, and well-controlled LDL cholesterol. The drug in this trial, taken every three months, reduced the relative risk of non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, or cardiovascular death by 15% when compared with placebo. Lots of fine print to read in this story, and I hope you'll do that. But have a listen to an enthusiastic lead investigator, Paul Ridker, talking to TCTMD's Michael O'Reardon. Obviously, the big news here is, you know, this is the first time in 40 years we have something that's not about lipid lowering. Right. We have no change in LDL at all. Mm-hmm. 30-40% reduction in IL-6 and the CRP, and an event reduction that's identical to what you got by being on a PCS canine inhibitor. And in fact, people miss this point, our baseline LDLs are lower here than they are in Fourier. We're at 80, they're at 90. But, we did, but, but we're at 80 at the end. We didn't change. And yet we got the same reduction, the same magnitude of risk reduction, 15, 17% as they did, but they drove LDL to the floor. That's good to know. That's, that's residual cholesterol risk. We talked about residual inflammatory risk. They're very different patients. So the fundamental issue, this is, this is about personalized medicine. And not all secondary inflammatory patients are the same. If your problem is you're at risk because your, C, because your inflammation has not been inhibited enough, it's too hot, your CRP is high, that's residual inflammatory risk, those patients now we have a, something to offer them. If your problem after your MI is that your LDL is still high, too high, okay, think about lowering LDL. TCTMD reporter Todd Neal covered Compass. This trial, conducted in 33 countries, randomized 27,000 patients with coronary or peripheral artery disease to one of three arms. The first was low-dose rivaroxaban twice daily on top of aspirin. The second was a stronger dose of rivaroxaban twice daily alone, and the third was aspirin alone. Compared with low-dose aspirin, the combo therapy reduced the risk of cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke through an average follow-up of two years, 4.1% versus 5.4%. That benefit came at the cost of increased major bleeding, 
3.1% versus 1.9%. But as John Eichelboom showed here, a composite net clinical benefit endpoint incorporating risks of the most serious bleeds still favored the anticoagulant-aspirin combination. Again, a complex study that warrants a close read of Todd's story. But for now, I'll leave you with the legendary Eugene Braunwald, 88 years young, who was the discussant for Compass here at ESC 2017. Now, Compass has taken a step forward by demonstrating in stable chronic coronary artery disease that the combination of low-dose aspirin and very low-dose rivaroxaban is superior to aspirin monotherapy as well as the rivaroxaban monotherapy. COMPASS is a large, rigorously conducted trial with unambiguous results, which I believe should change guidelines for the management of chronic stable coronary artery disease. But is this the end of clinical investigation in this field? I hope not. That is it for the August edition of Heart Sounds. I'd like to say a big thanks to my colleague, Caitlin Cox, who filled in as your Heart Sounds host last month. I can tell you she did indeed manage a short escape to the Catskill Mountains after I got back to my desk. The Catskills. Honestly, I don't think I've thought about the Catskill Mountains since devouring the Trixie Belden girl detective books as a kid. Remember those? No? I bet Trixie Belden grew up to be a medical journalist. If you're hungering for more podcasts, remember, TCTMD has two other cardiology stations, so to speak. Those are Talking Points with Michael Gibson and TCT Radio, recorded live at the annual TCT meeting. You can find all of our podcasts on the TCTMD homepage, on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. And speaking of podcasts, I myself was interviewed on the BMJ Group's Heart podcast hosted by James Rudd last week. A real honor. Thank you so much, James, for having me on your program. Very strange to be answering questions instead of asking them for a change. Podcast fans, I'm sure you already know the Heart podcast, but if not, give it a listen. I do hope you'll check out TCTMD for all our news coverage of ESC. Find the ESC page in the conference section for news, slides, and more. In September, TCTMD reporter Laura McEwen will be covering the Viva meeting in Las Vegas. I myself am shipping out to London Valves. As you must know by now, you can find me and all the other TCTMD journalists via our website bios or on Twitter. I myself am Shelley Wood, too. Drop us a line to tell us what you're up to or if you have feedback on this show. Thanks for tuning in.